0: The Golf Barons podcast. Tenuous Links. A golf pun we're not only incredibly proud of, but one we're also sure to emulate. Let us scurry through bloviated opinions on all things golf, some outrageous innovation ideas to speed up the game, a few laughs, and an historical retelling of an iconic golf moment. Time to add some swagger to your swing. Welcome, Barons, to another Tenuous Links Golf Podcast. Today, we've got a very special guest joining us all the way from sunny Chicago, Executive Vice President of Tour Edge Golf, John Craig, JC. Welcome to Tenuous Links.
1: Gentlemen, it's wonderful to be here, and uh, a far more civil hour for me than it is for you,
0: I believe. <laughs> and Philby, great to have you back. Yes, good again. to be here, Damo,
2: and uh, yes, great title, John. I do like Vice Presidents of anything.
1: Well, we tried so, well to get done. a couple of extra words into it, and yeah, no, that that was about as far as we could go with any legitimacy at all.
0: <laughs> now, before we kick things off uh, with our usual loves and hates, gents, uh, I wanted our listeners to learn a little bit about our esteemed guest. Uh, John, do you want to just tell us briefly about your foray into golf and how an Aussie lad found himself at the top end of a world-renowned golf manufacturer?
1: Oh, wow. How long have we got? The very skinny skinny version being uh, having been a, an amateur player uh, growing up in Melbourne and a member at Victoria Golf Club and spending the first sort of 10 years in my commercial career in the golf industry. I went off and did some other things for 10 or 15 years before getting back into the golf industry. So my initial background was with Drummond golf and spent some time with House of Golf before creating a, a, an import wholesale company where... My company sort of was the place where all the companies who weren't quite big enough to put a subsidiary office into the Australian market uh, came through my business. And through that, I started working with Touredge some 16 years ago. And after exiting that business a number of years ago, the owners of Touredge asked me to move to the US and uh, come and run the global business. So in a nutshell, that's how we ended up here.
2: And can you also explain why, um, why Damien refuses to give me my three-word back, John?
0: No, we'll get to that, Phil. We will get to that. <laughs> it's on the run sheet. But the way the way we usually kick things off is with just to vent, get, get rid of that negativity, dispel it from our bodies and move on into the happier things in the world of golf. So, Phil, have you got something to kick us off with?
2: I do. I'm actually um, hating seeing course after course that I'm desperate to play uh, and given the fact that again we might have mentioned it a couple of times in the podcast this covidy thing um restricting international travel knowing that not only will I not get there in the short term but I'm not sure when if at all I'll be able to get there. And I'm thinking about, you know, Arclo, we saw that from Ireland the other day, Philadelphia Cun- Cricket Club, which is which is an absolute dream just because I love the cut of the jib. Chicago, I've just got to meet someone in the Chicago area who can potentially help get me on and to Chicago, hence our special guest. And following the BMW, even Olympia Fields, I mean, it, that is just a cracking-looking golf course. But there's this desperation and this thirst to at least plan trips but I have no idea when I'll be able to. So I'm hating on the love of potential trips not being brought to fruition. That's a
0: really tricky mixed love-hate Yeah, that's that's classic
1: Phil there. That's as convoluted as it gets. That's prime.
2: Enough of my hates, John. We, as special guests, really need to get onto your hate because you are going to have to comply with our terminology for the podcast.
1: I, I, I do have a hate for you, but I've got to give you a very quick love first. Throwing the run sheet out totally. But the love is one of the great things of living in the US is the Golf Channel and live PGA Tour Thursday to Sunday, basically 45 weeks a year. So we get to watch a lot of golf here. So on Sunday, final round, Olympia Fields. My hate, clearly, Adam Scott's putting. <laughs> because I can tell you from the stats, on Sunday, you've got to listen to this to believe it. Adam Scott hold a grand total of 33 feet of putts on Sunday (laughs) now there are 18 holes and my very very quick math says that's less than 2 feet per (laughs) hole, now I challenge anybody to go out and play 18 holes (laughs) and the best you can do is that, I mean and to make it all worse he looks ridiculous with the long putter, so if you're going to putt badly you may as well look good so that's my clear, my first hate, and it's not a bad one, I think.
0: I'm no fancy mathematician or statistician, but uh, I'm fairly sure that that's very ordinary. So so that's pretty good hate. That's one of the better ones we've had. Try
1: and do it. I don't think it's possible. 1.85 inches per hole. Uh, John Rahm, hang on a minute.
2: So so John, the putt that John Rahm hold in the playoff was feet. almost equivalent in length to the...
0: No, twice. No, it was twice it was the length.
2: Double the It was double the length of Scotty
1: thinking in 18 of them. I
2: thought you said 33. It was double the length that he holed for a round.
1: He had 18 attempts to half, to <laughs> hole half as long. two Cyril's, though. <laughs> that's not special.
2: That's, fr- that's frightening. But how good was that part? Now, this is not my love, but how good was DJ's part initially? Followed by runs. Well, this I mean, actually.
0: And I hopefully I haven't stolen something. This of the delves l- into my love a little bit, Phil, because my love is actually. The love of an awkward celebration in a sporting event. So seeing John, John Rahm go berserk after holding that 66-foot bomb at the first playoff hole at the BMW Championship, everyone around him was still pretty sort of calm, and he was just going berserk. There was no crowd, no atmosphere to, to play off. It just looked so awkward, and it just brings it all back to the basic humanity. I absolutely loved it.
1: And guess what? He, the first thing he saw when he looked up, he sees six foot six DJ just standing there to look at him deadpan.
2: <laughs> <laughs> one of the most deadpan. Where do you, weeks you, could where do you ever go from there? <laughs>
1: well,
2: they should be mates. So it was interesting. The and I know they're not allowed to high five each other, or, or uh, in fact, I don't know what they are or aren't allowed to do because I couldn't be bothered doing any research for this podcast. But nothing um, changes for two guys who potentially have spent a lot of time together filming promotional videos and all these other things. there
1: didn't. I wasn't struck by the warmth. It didn't seem like there was a lot of love, did there?
2: I don't suppose you know anything about
1: that, John. <laughs> well, probably Ryder Cup protagonists. You know, they've, they've been on the other side of that fence at least once, to my recall, and DJ's mm-hmm. probably not an easy guy to get to know, maybe.
2: Maybe. Maybe that, maybe that is the case. But speaking of Ryder Cup, we will, whistling strikes, it'll be worth the wait, John.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes. Sorry, I've just flashed my Aaron Hill's polo
0: one more time. The camera. <laughs> 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 so, Philly, what's what's your love for this week? Just unfair.
2: I love the fact that golf courses designed by some of the greats of yesteryear are still so relevant today. And I know there have been major or, or, or length changes and things to various them, but, again, going back to Olympia Fields, the North course, Willie Park, Jr., again, I think designed in 1914, and I say I think because that's what I remember reading. <laughs> But, so it's 100 years old and he's still considered one of the greats and they've referred to minor changes over the journey but there've never been any major renovations to the golf course that he built or created 100-odd years ago. And, yes, they've had to try and lengthen it or make the rough thicker or make the fairways a little bit tighter. Uh, and I know hopefully later on we'll refer to the course conditions that abounded at the time and certainly over the first two days. But I love the fact that these courses are still relevant and aspirational. And not only that, from a tour player's point of view, instead of sucking and whinging about the golf course, like apparently they did on 12 at TPC Boston a few years back, they all said it's brutal, but not one of them complained about the golf course as a as a problem in terms of how it was set up, or well, the brutality. It's just like, hey, this is just hard golf. And I think the good ones loved it and the bad commentators hated it. Isn't that,
0: isn't that something we hear most years at the US Open where it gets really tricked up and it's really difficult? And you hear a lot of the whinging about, oh, this is just too hard, too hard. And the better golfers are all, oh, this is a great challenge. They actually thrive in those conditions. They like that separation. And even to hear guys like the great Jack Nicholas talk about it saying, no, Everyone's playing on this. It's such a mindset and you can see who's going to win just by hearing hearing the complaints or those who are whinging about it compared to those who are really eager to get stuck in.
1: Yeah, I don't necessarily think it's rocket science to the fact that you take a great, well-designed layout, present it well, put the best players on it, you're going to have a great event and a good vibe. I mean, <laughs> it isn't that complicated really. And the
2: Greens seem to be... Good enough that 33 feet in total putts hold for a round didn't seem appropriate, John.
1: Well, and again, I must reinforce, Phil, it's not only is it 33 feet, but it's 33 feet and looking bad at the same time. I think that's the game changer. (laughs) That's the key. It's the look. That's the kicker. But have you got a love, John? Uh, Do I have a love? Well, I have rather a sick love, actually, and one driven completely by self-interest and that's the fact that right now every other major sport in america is on hold resulting in golf going through absolutely uh through the roof here and and in fact we've just had industry stats published from participation in july showing that nationwide every state in the country participation is north of 20 percent in every market and you know, uh, as someone involved in the manufacturing industry, you know that that flows right through and, and instantly. So I got to say that uh, out of every dark cloud, there is a silver lining. But uh, a silver lining driven by self-interest, <laughs> I must confess. <laughs>
0: I'm not sure. Who's what is the COVID situation over there at the moment, John? In relation to demo, just in in Chicago itself, have you guys are you in, under any kind of restrictions at all for play or mask wearing or any of that sort of stuff? Just to just to let you know, down in, in Melbourne, it would probably break your heart if you didn't know that we are we're stuck down. We're all in. A, we're in a curfew coming the end of six weeks. Been no golf. It's been it's been pretty tough actually for people out here. So I just want to know what how it is over there. Is it obviously? Yeah. So
1: it, we went through the same kind of thing. For From mid March, where we had a very brutal six week lockdown. But since then, we've had a progressive move from stage four to stage three to we're now currently in stage two. So, for example, we have everybody back at our office. We wear masks permanently, social distancing. We're not holding meetings. Every meeting's by Zoom. And uh, life in general here. I live in a, a lovely suburb called Glen Ellon, about 35 minutes out of the city of Chicago itself. And it's probably for those of you in Melbourne, you know, maybe a little bit like Morris or in Sydney, kind of a little bit living down in the Shire. And, and for all intents and purposes, other than being able to go inside and eat inside at restaurants, but all our restaurants are open now for outdoor eating. And you know, by and large, other than having to take an extra level of care, life is, is relatively normal. So
2: golf courses are an open job?
1: Absolutely, yeah.
2: Well, well that's
1: a- and, and right now, one of my VP of operations was telling me a story that you know, he's been in the golf industry for over 30 years and the last two weekends he's taken his daughter to a driving range at a local Muni here at 2 o'clock on a Sunday and the last two weekends here it's been stinking hot, 95 degrees plus, really high humidity. And he's had to wait half an hour to get a tee box at a driving range. So
2: which supports
1: that's what's happening to golf over here. Which supports
2: the proposition from a few podcasts ago, Domo, that is COVID the best thing that has happened to golf? It's this supply and demand thing, this scarcity. You know, you, you take it away and we realise what
0: we missed. And I think people are going to start taking more time for themselves instead of this time-poor um, sort of narrative that we've had for quite a while I think you're going to find a lot of people give themselves more of that that me time, that, all right, I want to go out for a game of golf. I'm going to take four hours. I'm going to enjoy myself. I'm going to enjoy the fresh air and the freedom of it all. So, as you say, Phil, I think it might – it's it's what John just touched on earlier, the the silver lining in all of this could well be seen most with golf.
1: You know, we were, we had a meeting about this very issue just recently, and we were saying, listen, if if 25% of this growth can stick next year – it's still going to make a significant impact upon the global golf industry.
2: Whilst COVID has been a game changer, demo, I'd like to propose another one.
0: Propose away, Phil.
2: Should caddies be banned from putting greens on tour and from helping reading putts? Now, I know it does sound like I'm a bit of an anti-caddy thing and initially I did blame John Rahm's caddy for him failing to mark his ball and I've been corrected <laughs> because <laughs> I bothered to you watch could, the football. You put- could have
0: stopped that question four words um, in.
1: <laughs> Should caddies be banned? <laughs>
2: that's right.
1: <laughs> But he's one of the. This is going down a nasty is, rabbit hole. This but he's one of the key skills
2: uh, of a golf professional: reading putts, and therefore to get outside assistance seems to maybe it's helped Adam Scott with his thirty-three feet. But <laughs> yeah, didn't help we just say,
1: Maybe he needs a new caddy. <laughs> maybe we start, or, or maybe it,
2: <laughs>
1: it might be. It
2: would have been twenty feet, John. So maybe the caddies picked him up another thirteen. But but should caddies just? Grab the flag stick. Oh, no, you're not allowed to. Should caddies actually just go to the next tee and then the putter and move
1: on? Well, well, Phil, I think that's probably the stupidest thing I've ever heard you say, and I've heard a few of them over the years. That's so a long line of I contenders. Think, uh, I think I'm just going to go straight there and kill that right there, right now, as the stupidest idea I've ever heard. So I'll take that as a No. <laughs> Uh, affirmative. Why should they get help? Well, then just ban caddy. N- so that natural extension. Are you going yes. to make players carry their own clubs? Oh, heaven forbid! You said it, not me, John. <laughs>
0: dear, oh dear. You've, you've turned Phil. into a
1: philistine, Philby. You're literally Philby the philistine.
0: <laughs> philistine. <I> mean,
1: <laughs> Phil, explain, <laughs> explain stick, to them. Actually.
0: Explain to our listeners who might not have seen what happened with uh, with John Ram.
2: Oh no, it was just the the fact that he walked onto. I think it was he the fifth green on the third round, and his ball was probably five feet on the green, maybe 10 feet on the green. His caddy walked between him and the ball, so hence my feeling. He walked straight up to the ball, picked it up, and went to throw it to his caddy and then looked back down and realised that he'd forgotten to mark it. John, you've played a lot of top-level amateur golf in your journey and a lot of reasonable-level amateur golf and every now and again some ordinary amateur golf. But in a stroke round, have you ever picked up a golf ball without marking it?
1: No, it's fairly extraordinary. You know, you, you, I think the big question is, and we should start a movement, where was John Rahm's head at the time and what was he thinking about? <laughs> because it was not golf. And dare I speculate, but wow, it must have been exotic. That's all I can say.
0: Well, that's the thing not I've had John a Rahm. thrown in there
1: as well, quite by accident. Yeah, time,
0: we heard it. <laughs> Kipper, I mean, we hear Kipper talk about John Rahm as having one of the most brilliant swings going around. His impact position, he says he's freak like, and the only thing that's going to stop him from being an absolute superstar is his head. So he's kind of showing us more and more examples. But you know, if you can have a misstep like that, Phil, and still drop a sixty-six foot bomb and go berserk to win a tournament, you're doing you're doing all right.
2: They call it the double atom. Yes. These put on the last. Or it, the double Cyril.
1: Or the on. <laughs> That's pretty good. <laughs> okay. You, you've made some amends back there. Yeah. <laughs> the there double Adam. Are- and forever, a 66 foot part shall now be known as the double Adam.
0: <laughs> <laughs> so That's we, a need, hashtag. we it's need to
1: trademark that. That's pretty good.
0: Now, one, one of the things talking to someone over in Chicago, you're we're dreaming of many of the courses that are around, around your area, John, that you're lucky enough to. to be near Medina Chicago Olympia Fields we've touched on. Black Sheep is one I've got written down here. I don't know a lot about black sheep. Have you can you tell us a little bit about it? I
1: can. Black Sheep was started
0: about
1: it was a dream of a quite a wealthy guy about fifteen years ago who bought up some farmland out on the outskirts of Chicago and it was a, it's basically a, a lovely four hundred acre property in the middle of a bunch of cornfields, lovely rolling ground and He basically had the idea of creating, you know, a true golf concept, very much a long distance away from the traditional American country club model. So they kept the original farmhouse that was on the land and turned that into there's a bunk room with accommodation for six people. There's 150 members. Instead of building a a grandiose clubhouse, they built what we would know in Australia as a weatherboard clubhouse with one large room and a bar. Down below in the basement, lovely locker room and all the rest of it. But it's golf at its simplest and finest best. 27 holes, no tea times, yeah, walk up nice. anytime, uh, male only, which is somewhat of a tradition in the Chicago area where it's it's, it's one really of the few places where <laughs> there's, really? I think it's there's four clubs here in the area that still stand out as, as male only. Probably the best known being Butler National, which lost the Western Open as a very result of its male only stance. But you know, Black Sheep's a, a really interesting experience. It's a great layout. Stands a stands on its own against any great courses, but it's it's as much the experience of playing there. It's let's just say, it is a very baronesque day out in everything that really <laughs> a baron ship should stand for.
0: Outstanding.
2: So why is Chicago so so we look at all the golf courses in Chicago though, John, and there is this, it's like an epicentre of great tracks. The question that I've got is, why?
1: Well, I think, Phil, the history explains it pretty quickly. You know, Chicago is the hub of the Midwest. So go back 120, 130 years, and you had the rail expanding from the Midwest through Chicago. You know, there was a lot of wealth created here. and, and, And in those days where wealth was usually great golf followed, and the bottom line is that there was enough money here to bring out the and pay the great architects. So the the list is really you know quite extraordinary when you think of Rayner and McDonald and Chicago Golf Club, Shore Acres, Exmoor Country Club. You know I, I can't think of a city with more Donald Ross courses. You know Beverly, Evanston, Skokie, Old Elm, Ravenslow, Bobo Lake Northmore. I mean, it's a pretty amazing list of Ross classics from Reese jones with Coghill and Medina Fazio did a lot of work here with the Glen Club and Butler National I mean it's a you know it's a significant list and in talking to people and having lived here now for four years the You know, at the end of the day, the the money was there to actually bring these people to plots of land, which 100 years ago were available in the suburbs of Chicago. And there's also some really cool stories. Cantini is a a muni or a public facility, uh, really not quite, uh, only about five minutes away from where I live. And it's probably the most beautiful public course I've ever seen. I mean, it's just spectacular with lakes. It's presented magnificently every week, it's just gorgeous. And the story behind Cantini was that the late Colonel Robert McCormick was a very wealthy publisher here in Chicago, in fact, was the publisher of the Chicago Tribune, which those movie buffs should be able to remember a famous superhero that may or may not have hung out around the Chicago Tribune building. But uh, good old Colonel Robert decided to donate 800 acres right in the middle of the suburbs of Chicago create a, a foundation and trust to which they build a 27-hole golf course, the original family mansion and grounds. And so you have that type of philanthropy, you know, driving some magnificent facilities here as well.
2: Golf dreaming, Domo. I'm, I'm seeing that Chicago might be a trip in itself.
0: I think it's, I think it's moving up the list pretty rapidly, Phil. <laughs>
2: <laughs> as long as we can get
0: onto Chicago, I'm happy. And I hear, it, hear it's a snack. I was gonna say have you got a few spare rooms for to house us there, John JC. <laughs> we might get a, an an Aussie? For <laughs> no, no, no <laughs> problems.
1: No problems about the accommodation. The the tea time at Chicago. I mean, Chicago is one of the half dozen most private clubs in all of the US. It was a founding member of the USGA, the first eighteen hole golf course in the US. Uh, there's the saying around these parts that you know at Chicago you don't ask how much membership is because if you <laughs> if you need to ask. So and you can't afford it. So, uh, and they do have a, a structure whereby they're a couple of hundred members. There's no subscription. There's no fees. They run the course for the year, and everyone gets a, an invoice at the end of the year for their share. Okay. So it's kind of it, it's right up there, right up there with the top New England courses, Augusta, etc. And it is probably, I must say, the best course I've played in the world. And I'm an enormous Royal Melbourne fan having learned, you know, I grew up from age 10 playing Royal Royal Melbourne as a caddy. It's where I learned to play. But Chicago is, Royal Melbourne is such a nicer, more magnificent piece of land. You know, Chicago Golf Club was created effectively out of 250 flat acres and they still created a masterpiece. So it's just rather extraordinary. Uh,
2: So 9.13, I'll be on the first tee just Waiting. Or maybe at the front gate. <laughs> I'm not sure.
0: I'm not sure. Now, I want to move things along into a bit of gear effect. Now, this is this is very much your wheelhouse, JC. Now, you've seen the show, uh, that Golf Barons, for those who haven't cottoned on yet. Uh, you've heard this podcast. You've read our mag, Barons Life. You've known Phil and I for quite some time. I feel you're in a really unique position to answer this question for me. Who would you rather see swinging the CBX 119 fairway wood? And before answering, Ooh. remember that I'm the one who called it the greatest fairway ever created. Go.
1: Uh, well, if I was a parliamentarian, uh, they would call this a Dorothy Dix because I, <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, Phyllis Stein, but... You know, it's Demo every day, Louie. Sorry, pal.
0: Yes. <laughs> you heard it, Phil, it's official, no more no more bitching and moaning about the fairway, Phil. It is officially mine. But perhaps the solution
1: may be that Phil I might have to send you a brand new one, the EXS Pro, which is even better. And uh, yep. you can just leave Demo in your wake.
0: Doesn't bother. I don't mind that, JC. I don't believe you that it's better. Nothing is better than that thing. That that is, I I, would, I cuddle that at night sometimes.
2: Sure. I tell you what. I'm also going to leave you with is the sky marks on your CBX one one nine. You can keep those too. Given the fact that it is yours, they are yours. So own the whole thing. My Memories. Friend. Memories but are made differently
0: for different people, Phil.
2: But thank you. Should have, but critically,
1: listeners to the podcast will know that Damo was not a big fan of the driver. So I imagine that from time to time you do tee up these CVX one one nine, where the sky
0: always is a fair chance. <laughs> Actually, I don't use these guys are off the grass. I don't use these guys are off the deck. <laughs> 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 um, I'm an absolute deck player, otherwise known as a deckhead. I believe that's how it's pronounced. <laughs> what have you, what's where do you see, where are clubs as a manufacturer, where, where do you see things headed? What, what sort of direction are you guys, I guess, taking? And is it something that you keep an eye on other, you know, obviously you keep a, an eye on your opponents to a degree, uh, your competitors, but do you have a clear set of uh, a focus where you guys want to go over the next, I don't know, a roadmap over the next five, 10 years or whatever it might be? And how does that work from your perspective?
1: There's a couple of directions there. I mean, first and foremost, what we're really good at is is making really high-quality equipment and you know, my owner is a very conservative uh, Midwest guy and as a result, he's always been loath to really tip his hand heavily into the marketing game and and so Turridge has always had a long-standing belief of product first and so we've been able to, you know, continually produce really good product that may or may not have been heard of by quite so many people but it, it just means we can keep our prices realistic you know we we often find ourselves in a place where we're 20 percent, say cheaper than than other mainstream brands and with often superior equipment and, and that's what we're really good at and when it's all said and done that's kind of our our place in the, our place in the world but the the equipment market is really in a an interesting space now i mean i think the very topical subject all around the world is 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 the ball The driver and how far people are hitting things, and we get into the bifurcation argument. I mean, it's kind of interesting as a company. You know, we've had some discussions about these, but to be honest, we actually haven't. Formulated a, a company view on the basis that you know any changes are going to be so far down the track, and it'll be if at any point they do make a decision, then there'll be a three-year transition paid So we'll do with we'll all of that as a company at that time. But you know, to be honest, I have a pretty strong personal view that I think bifurcation is a fantastic thing for the industry, and I actually don't really know why my counterparts at, at other companies who obviously must be a lot smarter than me because I think it really brings the opportunity to do two things and, I, and to date it's been a little bit of a one-sided debate because all we've been talking about is limiting the performance of equipment for the top echelon of the game and I think if we look at that in a very single dimension then I think there, there are a lot of objections but the other side of the coin is that the average player needs every single piece of help that they can get. It's, we need clubs that are easy to use and, uh, you know, I hit at 250, 260 nowadays. I'd love to be able to hit it 290. Golf would be more enjoyable and at the end of the day, don't we have a responsibility both, you know, virtually all stakeholders in the game to, to make a game that's more enjoyable, that people want to play. So why isn't this a double-sided coin where, yes, bifurcation means some restrictions for the top end of the game where... I mean, I don't want to see the top players playing six west at Royal Melbourne with driver Gatwich. It defeats the whole purpose of 100 years of history and the intent of the designer, and right now there is absolutely no doubt we're making 50 or 60 of the world's classic courses. They are playing completely different to how the designer had intended to. Yeah. Now, that hole was designed to be played with a driver and a five or six iron. And I think professional golf, a little bit like what we saw at Olympia Fields, when it's more challenging, it's more interesting. The bomb and gouge fest, it wears pretty thin pretty quickly. I mean, let's not take away from the skills of DJ. The 30 under he shot last week, or the week before, I should Absolutely. say, was spectacular. Yeah. But at the end of the day, it's kind of pretty boring television. And I challenge anybody that to watch Olympia Fields last week and say, you know, that was better entertainment. So... You know i i think that limiting at the top end i mean and it's not like this is a new concept for heaven's sake i grew up with it so in 1980 when i started my amateur career i'm playing a small ball and they announced that okay you got three years to switch over and if and we played in australia where it was optional to play both and in fact you could switch in the middle of a round when i was playing so and i i have a beautiful story where in the 1981 australian open i'm catting for an american guy i'm 19 years, 18 years old or something. I'm counting for a guy called Robert Raymond, second round. We are right on the cut line, the 16th at Victoria, blowing into 25-knot southerly straight into us. So back in those days, it was a ripping three or four iron on a good day. So today it's like with the large ball, it's like three wood and you're never going to hit it close with a three wood. So he's come over to the bag and swapped his large American large ball, spalding ball it was, for, I can't remember, it might have been a B51 or it could have been a Dunlop 65, but he switched to the small ball on the 16th. Stands up, smokes this free iron, like just covering the flag the whole way, 20 yards over the back. So <laughs> it creates interest. that The diversity of equipment, you know, gives us opportunity to create more interest. So personally, I, I'm actually a, a great supporter that. I think if we can create a fair and reasonable set of rules for the professional game while at the same time loosening rules. I'd love to see COI taken, you know, up to 290 uh, for the average player because they're going to enjoy it because they will hit it 20 yards further and I just can't see that being a bad thing other than the old adage of 20 yards further into the shit. But that makes it fun as well because all of a sudden you start having more choices. Where, Where do you think the angst is from a manufacturer's
2: point of view? John, I mean, where, where's their objection? Look,
1: I, I need to be a little bit careful here, but hypothetically, no, let's say there might be some very large companies with, you know, very significant market shares who, at the end of the day, the status quo is where they are all very
0: comfortable. Yeah, it, it's interesting that you mentioned. First of all, you're going to be in pretty vehement agreement with where we sit on bifurcation because I think you hit the nail on the head there, JC. That fundamentally it's got to be about the enjoyment from an amateur's perspective or from the everyday golfer punter's perspective, it's got to be about the enjoyment and there's no question. I don't think anyone can genuinely argue that it wouldn't, that having that extra choice and that extra help isn't going to make the game more enjoyable for the everyday punter.
1: I mean, take it to the extreme. Imagine the PGA tour where you have conforming events and you have three non-conforming events each year. Righto boys, (laughs) play what you want knock yourselves out. Let's see you hit at 400. You know, golf has got to be open to lots of new things. I mean, if you look in Asia, I mean, Japan and Korea have been down this track for some time. In fact, uh, a very big thing in Japan right now is custom fitting based on COR. So if you need more distance, they're giving you hotter and hotter products. Because at the end of the day, they're just not hung up on competition and scoring. It's about, you know, enjoyment from golf. And you know, while I, as a manufacturer, that would be an absolute nightmare. You know, the general concept is, you know, let's be open-minded that at the end of the day, most of us go out on a weekend to, to have a good time and, and so the more help we can give the average player has got to be a good thing. So let's, let's balance the trade-off and I think the industry wins because the other key thing is that effectively we're operating in a bifurcated world now. I mean, if you look at our company, so we offer an EXS Pro Ranger product It is so low spin that the average player can't use it. So we're actually creating a product that's already there. It just isn't labeled and certified a certain way as this can only be used, you know, or this is designed to be used for, you know, national amateur events and and professional tours. And then we're making, you know, lots of different super game improvement product. It's really a hallmark of our company. So to some degree, we're already doing it. We're just not labeling it.
2: And Damo, by using blades, is keeping himself back. With the, uh, the pack
1: as
0: well, John, yeah. but, well, but it's the, the choice though, Phil.
1: He's the perfect oh, example of that you can have a bifurcated market and the amateur player does not have to use. I mean, he can use pro equipment if he wants and I'll, I'll bet you that a significant amount still will because, you know, we, we want to be, be like Phil. And, yeah. you know, again, I could imagine guys having two sets of clubs or at least two drivers and going out with their mates and, okay, we're going to have a hard day today. We're going to play... X ball, and you've got to play this type of driver. It changes the game completely. It's the same with coloured golf balls. I mean, we should all be playing with coloured balls. Everyone in the group plays a different colour. It's a game changer. And you guys have been big advocates of that for a long time. But, you know, we're stuck in walking down the fairway saying, so is, is it? You, are you number three or number two? I uh, can't
0: remember. What, what's that like over in the US, John? Are the Yanks a little bit more... Likely to play, um, are they a little bit freer with their golf, a little bit less conservative uh, than a lot of Australia? Like, are they more happy to have fun and be a bit, a little bit not silly? Might not be the right word, but just to just to to push the game a little bit, you know, more modern direction and and have a bit of a laugh out there as opposed to being too stuck in the old ways. Uh,
1: I don't know. I I think with twenty five million golfers, one of the things over here is that the scale of the market, you've got a bit of everything. But ultimately, and perhaps sadly, you know the industry here is still very dominated by conservative by conservative thinking and the country club mentality and and let me throw this at you to put into perspective of where golf sits over here. So, I mentioned earlier that I've been a member at Victoria Golf Club for 40 odd years now. You know, we know subscriptions and the cost of golf in, in Australia is unbelievably affordable. So, 300 yards up the road from here is a beautiful country club called Glen Oak Country Club. And, you know, it would have been great for us to to try and join there. Well, you know it's a mid level nice facility but it's 80000 US dollars to join it's 14000 US dollars per year mind you we only play 5 months of the year here because we're in snow for 3 months and the course is closed the other 2 or 3 so, and there is no waiting list it's you can't get in so it kind of gives you a feel for the top end of golf here is really top end and and that tends to dominate that thinking but equally you go down to village links to the local muni here and there's weekend warriors that would love to be hitting a 290 off the tee and playing volvic four coloured pink balls and you know going all out with a wingman and uh, four stubbies (laughs) I'll get back onto one
2: product question John because it's something that that being a bit of a techie I kind of need to know an opinion from a manufacturer which of the elements if it were to be bifurcated would wind it back far enough Now, and we can talk about a combination of ball and club, but is it about taking driver to 0.75? Can I ask, has anyone actually tested how far things would need to be wound back to take 30% of distance away?
1: Yeah, yeah, we have that it's something that we consistently do. And we all get heads made at various different CT levels from limit at uh, right up to 257, which is limit plus margin, you know, 240 to 30 to 20. Interestingly, from about 240 to 265 or 270, there really isn't a lot of difference. But go below 240 and you start to see drop-off. Go above 265, 270 and you start hitting rockets. So it's not a purely linear curve in terms of adjusting CT to rebound effect. And that's a consequence of various engineering and, and spring effect, et cetera, et cetera. But, I, I, you know, the ball is the the predominant driver of distance. And I think when it comes to equipment, the biggest impact, you know, if you took the driver head back to 385 or 390cc, you're going to see some different swings on the PGA Tour that the 460cc driver just enables them to freewheel. And and I make that up for the point, you know, we have not tested, okay, what what is the CC level that all of a sudden changes confidence to a significant level that you're going to change technique? But, you know, throwing it out there, you know, at 350, you know, pick up an old 350 or 360 CC driver nowadays and it's smaller than your three would. I mean, it's just, you know, that would change things. And so I don't know exactly where and there's people way smarter than me that can make those sorts of decisions. But, you know, at the end of the day, a 450-yard par four, you know, shouldn't be played with a driver and a 40-yard flip wedge like Bryson was, so 10th at Olympia Field. Or, well, you know, it, it was just, it's just crazy. It's just, it's not the way the sport was intended to be played. You know, I think it will become very monotonous in, and it's not now, it's more like, take. let's go 20 years forward. So at some point in time, the powers that be as custodians of the game, you know, really need to stand up and, 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 and protect the game for what the game is. In my personal
2: view, the other one was the um, interview with Tim Petrovic or Petrovic or Petrovic after the Champions Tour after Phil won on debut, John, You know where he quite clearly pointed out because because we look at Champions Tour and we are quite in, both interested and excited by by the flow of skill and talent, but the fact that they just seem to be having more fun. Damo, we spoke about this. They'll, they'll have a, a wine and get together, their camaraderie, and all the rest of it. But he mentioned yeah, about absolutely. Nicholson and the fact
0: that we love these guys. <laughs>
2: Yeah, yeah, and we do, and they're our heroes. But we we spoke about he spoke about Mickelson hitting a couple of shots that the others just don't have in their back. And so this is the flow on of not winding it back. So
1: that's the generation. Really, you know, when Phil goes out there, he's the he's the eldest of the new generation coming up against really the, the youngest of the old generation. So it is a perfect generational divide. And the particular course that they played down in Missouri there really lent itself to, you know, was wide open with huge, full, huge greens and Phil could just basically freeload and just free will. And uh, I spoke to Tim after it and he just said, listen, he just hits shots that I can't hit. You know, he knocked it on the fourth, I think, on the final round, which was four, no, 360 or 370, knocked it onto 10 feet, made eagle. And Petro said, listen, I just don't have that shot and I never have and I never will. But I tell you, those Champions Tour guys don't ever be mistaken by a glass of red wine or those top 10 or 15 <laughs> players work as hard or harder, and they're all making very good coin and, you know, they're working as hard as the main tour guys. Well, I'll never forget watching Scott McCarran hit drivers one day. He busted his driver a couple of years back, and this was before he was one of our staff players. And I watched him in a stinking hot, humid Florida day hit drivers literally two hours. Flat out, and the last one was going just as hard, and at, you know, fifty-three or fifty-four, and he hits at three hundred, and you know, it, it was it was pretty impressive. You see, Langer this year won in uh, in Tucson, and uh, it just coincidentally I was in uh, Laguna that uh, following Monday and was at the event, and the first guy on the range I had to meet someone at nine o'clock on the Monday morning, and there's freaking Bernard nine o'clock. He's he's won the night before is the first guy that's traveled made it and is out there grinding at nine o'clock i mean that sort of dedication is something that often maybe doesn't get appreciated as much on the champions tour as to how hard those top players work
0: yeah they're absolutely our idols of of yesteryear a lot of them and they know how to live as well phil we we need to start an active campaign to change its name to the uh, the barons tour because i reckon there's plenty plenty of Lads out there who would uh, who would enjoy our style of thinking, but just on the Champions Tour, JC, what's Tour Edge is is actually well, is very active there. What 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 is it that lends the older guys to your? Company, I guess, or to 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 wanting to get involved with the kinds of um, products and things that you guys well, pr- uh, create. I, I think one is that you know
1: we recognise the Champions Tour as a, a very approachable place that suits our brand and given our, our our target market, the people who buy our product are a little bit more you know down to worth is probably overstating it a little bit but they probably see value as a little bit more important than the than a glitzy brand and and so champions tour as an overall premise made a lot of sense for us and so we committed a couple of years back to really getting out and servicing those guys just as hard as what the young guys are being serviced on the main tour and the guys have really appreciated that because you know, in, in some respects, they're in the the sunset of their career, and and so the support, which is not saying they don't get supported by other companies by any by any means, but you know, we've really gone over and above to treat them that they are still just as special today as they were when they were top ten in the world and and strutting it on the main stage, and I think that's been really well appreciated. We have a, our tour rep, of which we now have two, are both guys in their early 60s who've been out on tour for nearly 30 years. They've grown up with these guys. They have great relationships. So there's kind of just a really nice fit all around with where we and our staff. and Almost a family style feel. Look, there is an element of uh, that out there. And I, I think the biggest thing on the Champions Tour is at the end of the day, the ego is just not Which is not to say they're egoless, but the ego is just not as sharp as when these guys were in their 20s and 30s and the dog-eat-dog kind of competitive nature of the main tour. I mean, most of these guys have made a lot of money, so the pressure's off. So really, it's more about pride than it is about ego or status and... So when you're playing for Bride, it's much easier to walk off the 18th and say, you know, I, I got beat fair and square, let's go and have a glass of red.
2: There was a beautiful shot, John, of Ernie, Freddie and Vijay all hitting wedges on the practice fairway that circulated on social media, with, with which I think sums up the whole of the Champions Tour and whether you're talking about Bernardo, whether you're talking about Petro or all these other guys. It's just These are elite, super elite talent that, that as the young guys come through into the Champions Tour, the talent on the Champions Tour is getting better. My big question being how do we get the Champions Tour more eager to travel en masse, potentially down to a golf course like Raw Melbourne or Victoria, Metro yeah. or Vic for the Barons Tour event? Well, I, I, I
1: think if you could dust off the TARDIS, I mean, the reality is I think these guys, and, and it's incredible that I've got to know most of them pretty well and you know, and, and most of them have been to Melbourne at some stage during their career and, you know, it's a... It's a common bond we share talking about sandbelt golf golf courses. So, you know, I've been able to create a rapport with a lot of these guys and they would love to go back and play in Australia. But, guys, you've just got to understand it's a 24-hour commute. You know, it was it was like, and you guys might have seen a post that I put on Facebook at the time of the President's Cup that if the international team wasn't so far ahead by the end of Friday, they were never going to win because it really was one of the more arrogant things I've seen in sport that the Tiger thinks – well, boys, we'll just play down in, we'll play down here on Sunday, we'll jump on a private and we'll fly 27 hours and we'll get in on Monday and, you know, we'll be right. Around the course, probably one of the most demanding, you know, mental courses where you really have to think your way around the composite at Royal and, and for them not to be sharp, I mean, it was no wonder they came out and got their asses kicked on the first couple of days. But, you know, they are always going to come back pretty hard and solid when they woke up. And, you know, anyone who's done that 27-hour commute knows that, I mean, you just, it doesn't matter how many times you do it. I mean, you are Fruit Loops for 48 hours.
2: So, John, given you've been good enough to join us as a special podcast guest, here's your chance, Turej. What's Turej's secret sauce? Because you know I have been a fan of particularly the three for a long time. Long time, and Demo my
0: three wood. Yeah,
2: a- apparently has been given my new three wood. So I'll have to wait on my new new three wood. But <laughs> certainly from the CBX, and even going back pre XCG six and XCG CB four, and you know what, what's the secret source of Tourage and Exotics?
1: Well, I, I think the fact you know what we are really good at is being able to identify a really broad range of player segments and and make a product. Exactly for that segment. And it's not only about our, you know, as an industry, we often kind of get a little bit lost in talking about, you know, premium performance equipment, distance, and all the rest of it. And we forget that there is a huge mass of players out there that on a 150 yard par three with a water carry, you know, as seniors get a little bit older or for the ladies, I mean, some of them can't carry that. So, you know, we make equipment that helps them do that. So I think a you know making a really broad range of product that is eminently usable for the purpose in which it's designed. And then secondly, as I touched on earlier, I, I think we're very much driven by value and and at the end of the day recognising that you know there, there are other you know options available, but at the end of the day if if you want something that's really good and really fairly priced, I mean we're very good at producing that. and yeah, so you might not see as many flashy ads from us as as other, and you might see us more out on the champions tour than you'll see us on the main tour. But you know, all of that ultimately, you know, sits in the retail price of the club on the the retail floor. Which, by the way, I, I do I do have to slide one plug in today's podcast, oh. which is some very exciting news for Tour Edge, in that we've really can, and in fact, this is a scoop for. Golf Barons, that uh, as of approximately 9, uh, November 15, we will be commencing a new partnership down in Australia with the Drummond Golf Group. And you'll find our equipment available in all 52 Drummond stores around the country. So that's a, an exciting development for Tour Edge and our global business. But of course, as someone that started their career as a 16-year-old at Drummond Golf, it kind of completes uh, an interesting circle. So there you go. There's one for your listeners,
0: straight off the press. We can edit that. Is that out,
2: where I have fine. to go to pick up my three wood, John? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah. That's right. <laughs> that went well. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's good. No, 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 and well done. And my my other question for you, John, what's your been aware wow moment? I mean, obviously you you've spoken about scale in the US and all the other things about doing business and your joy of being there. But have you had a wow? Moment or a couple of wow moments where you just get to. Because I'll tell you what, Kipper is the best name dropper we know, and we need someone to put him in his place. So here's what really I'm saying is John, your chance to put Kipper in his place, drop us some names and
0: drop
1: away. All right, well, you better get the bell out because it was in Flint, Michigan the week before last out on the range, which I head out about four times a year to work with our tour reps and see what's going on and uh, had the very fine privilege of being introduced to Jack and Barbara and spending 20 minutes talking to Jack as his son, Gary, is out on Champions Tour now and actually plays our fairway wood. And Gary was kind enough to take me over to uh, introduce me to his mum and dad. And uh, I didn't call the mum and dad, although I wanted to. (laughs) But, yeah, had a lovely 20 minutes chatting to Jack and Barbara about life and golf and Australia and golf in Australia. So you would have to say that's probably the big dog when you're talking about the greatest of all time. Did he ask about me, John? We had a discussion about tall short hitters, but we (laughs) actually referred to a couple of other names. (laughs) So there's there's more than one of you, Philby. (laughs) Thank so, you. no, that, that was pretty special and, hey, listen, you talk about seeing VJ and Ernie and Freddie standing on the range. Well, let me tell you, when you're standing out there and talking and working with these guys and they're testing equipment for you and giving you feedback, yeah, for a young kid from Melbourne, it's, it's better than a dream come true and, uh, you know, watching those guys, you know, play the Masters as a kid and getting up at 2 in the morning and all of that stuff and, and now you actually know them on a first-hand basis, it's... Um, it's pretty cool,
0: I must say. Normally at this time to bring us home, we'd, we'd get Kipper to do his a tale from the tour of some description. He's usually been pretty good to be fair to him, but we know you can top him because you uh, you're the real deal. He's he's a he's a has been, you're a is now. So <laughs> have you got have you got a little um, a little tale that could bring this podcast home?
1: Well I I do and and look it's it's probably not a great advert for two reds when you think about it, but I'll tell you the story nonetheless and only because it's so iconic. So Bernhard Langer, who we all know is is really renowned as one of the great ball strikers that's ever played the game, and Bernhard plays two old Adams hybrids. It's an Adams Idea pro nineteen degree and I can't remember the model of the 22 degree he plays, but he's played these things forever. He plays a shaft that's almost impossible to get. It's this Midas RT technology thing, but he's been trying for five years to replace these hybrids because he knows one day the, the, the head's gonna fall off and that's just the reality of it. <laughs> so we've worked with him a little bit and we had a product early last year that we thought would be absolutely ideal. So we're building some clubs and it was down in Boca Raton in Florida. And I actually was down there for the test. And so I'm with Andy Harris, our tour rep. We get down there with Bernard. He's already on the range. He's already warmed up. We go over, set up track man. Bernard, he'd seen the hybrids before, so he knew the shape and he liked the shape and he liked the feel. So here we go, test starts. So he starts off with a couple of his 19 degree, leans his up against the bag and and, and takes out, stands up, has a waggle, whack, 215-yard carry. The ball doesn't deviate an inch stands up, hits another one. This line traced the first one. It literally land on top. Anyway, he's gone on and hit five of these in a row, just absolute arrows. And I've looked over at Andy, our tour rep, and of course, you're only standing four paces behind Bernard, so you can't say anything. But I'm grinning at this stage like a big fat spider and you know, it couldn't have been going better. So then Bernard looks, looks back at us. And I'll do a great disservice to the German-speaking people here, but Bernard in his very eloquent way says, "Um, yeah, pretty good. Let me see if I can feed it. So he goes back, sets up, whack, hits the most gorgeous 10-yard sliding fade, and it lands on top of where the other ones have been. It's about three yards shorter, so 212. Whack, does the same thing again. And again, hits five in a row. So at this stage, he's hit 10 shots, and there wouldn't be two-and-a-half yards dispersion between them, straights and fades. So he turns around nodding and says, um, let me see if I can draw it. Goes back. Whack. Oh, this thing just goes dead straight. Doesn't deviate. Didn't even look back. Didn't say anything. Sets up. Hits another one. Exactly the same thing happens. Absolutely dead straight. And he looked back to Andy and I, walked back to his bag, picked up his, went back, hit another shot, hits this beautiful baby 10-yard drawer, Two hundred and eighteen yards this time. And he looked back at it and says, I cannot draw it. <laughs> and that was the end of the test with <laughs> <for Bird. laughs> But it was the most amazing oh, exhibition of so. ball striking. I mean, quite seriously, we're talking two yards, three yards of dispersion across, 15 shots, you know, straight right to left, left to right. And our particular club was designed not to go left. And absolutely the engineers did their job
0: very honest and on that fantastic tale from the tour we'll bring this tenuous links golf podcast to a close special thanks to today's special guest executive vice president of tour edge golf john craig jc thanks again i really appreciated your insights today and be sure to keep supporting us by watching golf barons on demand on Ko and foxtel the whole first season is now there for you to watch at your pleasure and for our us and uk listeners you can also see our first season on amazon prime Head over to baronslife.com and sign up to get reminders about this podcast and check out the latest issue of Barons Life Golf and Lifestyle magazine with plenty of game-changing content inside. Until next time, Barons, be sure to add some swagger to your swings.